the incomparable. Number 330, December 2016. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell. We are uh, taking, we're going to be really timely this time and talk about a show that just finished its first season uh, this very week as we record this. Uh, in fact, it's just only been a day. We're recording this early in the week. It is Westworld Season 1 on HBO, which we've been following raptly. And now I've convened a panel to talk about the first 10 episodes that have just spooled out here on HBO. Joining me to talk about Westworld are some familiar faces and some old friends. And some new friends. So let me introduce them to you. Glenn Fleischman, uh, uh, an old enemy from the past. Hi, Glenn. Jason, you don't look like anything to me. It's funny. <laughs> That's weird. John Syracuse is also here. Probably a human. You know, Jason, some people choose to see the ugliness in this podcast. Tony Sindelar is here, too. <laughs> Hi, Tony. <laughs> Howdy, nerds. Oh, nice. Nathan Alderman is back with us, a veteran uh, TV and uh, and uh, and even the incomparable, I think, uh, contributor uh, on his second episode, I think, with us. Hi, Nathan. Hello, Jason. You make a terrible human being, and I mean that as a compliment. Very nice. And I would be remiss if I did not introduce the other two members of our panel, because... You should introduce everybody, but they are the co-hosts of our own TV podcast special Westworld segment. It is greetings from the Uncanny Valley. Kelly Gamont is here. Hi, Kelly. Howdy do, Buckaroos. And Don Melton. Shall we drink to the lady with the white shoes? <laughs> Reference acknowledged. <laughs> so if you want to dive deep in, there are many Westworld podcasts, but I would say the one that you really should be listening to is Kelly and Don's podcast because it's great and you will hear them talk about uh, all sorts of theories and interesting things. This is going to be kind of like a high-level overview now that the season is over. Sort of looking at, at not, not so much with the theorizing, except maybe we'll talk a little bit at the end about season two, but about sort of how this um, – how the show worked. So it's fascinating because this is a a TV series based on a movie from 1973 uh, that was written and directed by Michael Crichton and it famously starred Yul Brynner um, mm. as a man in black, but also a robot. Uh, and uh, and this is a I, I, when I heard they were doing this as a series, I was a little bit skeptical. I was like, I, you know, Westworld, the kind of cheesy 70s killer robots movie. But, um, you know, it, it, I was impressed with the execution from the very beginning it, they spent a lot of money on it there are a lot of fantastic actors in it and uh i i appreciated that they they had 10 hours to to tell this story and so didn't like jump to the killer robots in the first episode which i think i think was nice so uh let's start there what what was everybody's uh if you've got anything to say about sort of expectations going in about what you what you really thought you would find in westworld i think that might be a good place to start how many of you actually saw the movie in the theaters just out of curiosity in the theaters um, the in the ancient theaters. one here don i think you're gonna do some math there and uh yeah 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 so i, I, I did I, see the movie when i was a child on yeah. the television device uh, as did i yeah and so i, I had uh i thought Oh my God, they're going to make that into a TV show. And so my expectations were so low, which is probably why I love the show. Yeah, I remember reading the book as a child, um, but I never, like, I, like, I saw the movie on TV, you know, a couple of times. And honestly, my frame of reference for this was the Simpsons episode where they go to a park <laughs> where there's a bunch of robots. And so, Simpsons did it. Yep. Thank you. yeah, so I sort of remember it from that and going, Oh yeah, right. They were making fun of that movie that starred Yul Brenner that I remember watching like on a 
you know, on a Sunday when it was raining on the channel that showed old movies on days when it rained. And I don't remember the movie very vividly, but I remember being interested as I heard the names of the people involved, regardless of what it was that they were going to do. My expectation was a certain level just based on it's Lisa Joy, it's Jonathan Nolan, mm-hmm. uh, um, Anthony Hopkins is in it. So like all of those, thi- all of the, you know, uh, Thandy Newton is in it. All of these people that I heard were in it, uh, it sort of raised those expectations another notch and another notch. Like whatever the story is that they're telling, it's going to be really interesting just based on the writers and actors and what I know of the people of those people now that they're committed to it. I don't think I saw the movie. Maybe I saw bits and pieces of it. Like I kind of vaguely knew the premise. I think the only reason I watched it, it was basically just on pedigree, you know, uh, like the actors and the fact that it's an HBO show and it looked like it was going to have a big budget. Um, And when I watched the first episode, like they dumped, they dumped the whole premise on you. Like it was so clear from episode one that whatever, whatever vague notions I had of the premise, this wasn't going to be a show where, like, you eventually find out that they're robots. It's like, within 10 <laughs> minutes, like, they have an actual voiceover saying, here's the deal. This is the park. These are the people. These are the rules. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, all right. Well, that settles that. And I was like, this is, I guess this isn't going to be a show with a lot of reveals, I thought. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sweet summer child. Yeah, I, I kind of thought I, I saw where they were going with it by the end of episode one, but I'm like, but they just dumped, they dumped uh, all of the things that I didn't know about Westworld. They dumped them in episode one and then moved on to all the things that I guess none of us knew about Westworld. Because I, I guess if you had seen the movie, you're like, oh, West theme part, robots kill humans, whatever. Um, I mean, obviously they didn't get to the human killing part, but the, like a said, fly the died, John. Yeah. A fly. Oh, they they spent ten episodes and they didn't really get to the human killing until the very very end. So we had an entire season of television of this show telling its story, which was not the story of the movie because I'm assuming the story of the movie, like or you know the the premise, is in episode one. I was looking forward to a, a reboot because, uh, but I didn't think I was. Like I thought it's an interesting topic. What we've seen it explored in so many things, you know, from Data and Star Trek to a million other movies and whatever is like, will artificial life gain something, you know, advantage on us? And I do not have an HBO or did not have an HBO subscription. And uh, I figured because it was an HBO, I was like, well, it's probably like just red wedding every episode. It's going to be blood and gore and violence, <laughs> and we'll see. All, you know, base or human emotions explored and, you know, looking at the actors, I'm like, well, this could be good. But and then I think by episode three or four at the latest, uh, people were raving about this being something very interesting and different than what they expected, including people I respect. Jason, that includes you. Hi. And uh, just. (laughs) Oh, my God. I love you, too, Glenn. (laughs) I love you, too. And um Anyway, but I, so I actually got an HBO Now subscription in order to watch this show. So I, I paid ca- additional cash money, um, with that, with the expectation that it was probably going to be something unexpected and terrific. And I had my expectations rewarded. Uh, I think I knew almost nothing. Uh, I've been really busy the last couple of months and I keep showing up for stuff and it's like, I don't know anything about this. And it, <laughs> you know what? It's like, it's worked out great. Didn't know anything about a rifle. I think basically I was told, yeah, it's like, uh, Jurassic Park, but with, uh, robot cowboys. Check it out. And that, that wor- worked out great. Here I Tony, am. Tony, are, are you a host? You keep um, showing up without any memory of things? 
Uh-oh, he's in a reverie now. Oh, I locked him in. No, Jason is the host. I am the host. You are the panelist. Yes. <laughs> this should be obvious by now, but I'm going to officially blow the spoiler horn right here. Because, uh, yeah, we're talking about Westworld Season 1, the whole thing. If you haven't watched it and don't want to be spoiled, why are you listening to this podcast? Spoiler alert, some of the characters are robots. Yeah, there are robots, and and kill all humans is a thing that can happen with robots. robots. Sometimes it happens. Who knows? Well, now that somebody's brought up Jurassic Park, I just want to point out, like, this was sort of Jurassic Park 1.0, if you think about it, where somebody goes and builds something great, and then the thing that they built as like entertainment and fun turned on them mm-hmm. and that that just got refined with dinosaurs in jurassic park not too many years after this if my michael Crichton timeline is correct i didn't i'd forgotten he'd written westworld until the series came out and then i actually looked or saw it in the credits like oh yeah this is another iteration of the same idea from him it's exactly the same and, and several people in the chat room are pointing out michael Crichton clearly got like left behind by his parents at an amusement park when he was a kid or something <laughs> he has issues here there oh, are Issues. Uh, bad experience with the carnies. Yeah, an early script where like a, a roller coaster eats people, and it's just no one would make that show. No, for Stephen him, King so. did that one, I think. <laughs> yeah, and oh, Killer okay. Clowns, he did that too. So this is what worried me about uh, HBO doing this show was I I was just crossing my fingers hoping they would go past Crichton's themes because Crichton didn't really have a lot of themes other than. You know, something goes wrong and... Uh-oh, robots. Yeah, robots, they'll kill you. Life will find a way. Yeah. Well, robots, dinosaurs, it's the same thing, right? So, uh, also yeah. death. Yeah, also death. Right. And it's like, well, that's pretty boring. I think, I've, I think I've seen that show. And I was so blown away when I watched the first episode. I was like, okay, something yeah. else here. Don, do I remember in the movie, there is no reason expressed. It's just all of a sudden the robots, something happens and they just start killing everybody. There's no real like, there's not even, not even the consciousness thing, but it's not even like sabotage. It's like, oh, these things are so complex that eventually they'll break down and kill everyone. That's actually a realistic depiction of software. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> exactly. That's almost more legitimate than what we're seeing now. It's my yeah. whole career right there. There's so much in the first episode that, that you start to think, what is the show going to be about? Because um, at times I have thought that this this is this is a, a show that is about what it means to be human. There are times when I think that the show is about sort of slavery and um, and which is a common theme actually in in robot sort of stories about sort of like w- at what point are they are they alive and are you enslaving them? Um, and then it'll, at another point, I thought this is entirely a show about storytelling and and everything in it because you know they are creating this ex- experience in Westworld and one of the characters is the annoying British writer who you know is really super annoying, but to the point where I got annoyed by him. And then as time went on, I kind of went through the other side to being enjoying how annoying yeah. he was. Yeah. And, uh, and then of course, Ford, Anthony Hopkins, who is working on his new narrative. And there's this whole question of like, we are, um, we are trying to identify with the characters we're seeing, but at the same time, we're, we're very obviously watching characters tell going through a story not just like the show we're watching but inside that there there is uh, we're asked to empathize with these robots but a lot of what we're given by uh from them is 
programming. It's their, it's the, them going through the script. And that, that's just, uh, so it, it has all these different levels there. And, um, which leads me to my first question for everybody here, which is, what do you think about, uh, I've heard a lot of people say that, that Westworld is problematic, uh, because they don't, they don't feel like they have a connection to the hosts because they're artificial and they're just following a script. What? No. Who says that? Wow. What? Yeah, that's... What kind of what kind of monsters say that? Yeah, I had more connection to the host than I had to the human characters. Nearly all of the human characters are super, super yeah. terrible. They're yeah. selfish, oh, yes. scheming, horrible, yeah. lousy people. The hosts are sweet and kind and and are at least trying uh, to do something. Well, some of, well, some, some of them. Some of them. Some, some some more than others. The, the first episode of the show, though, like was entirely from the host perspective. Like mm-hmm. that was that was my you know right. I'm coming to this, this is going to be a show about robots eventually they're going to go wrong you know yada yada but the first episode the the pilot is everything about it for, from you know is, is from the perspective of the hosts even when they the show does a little misdirect and you know has you look at Teddy when they talk about the newcomers it's like oh maybe he's a newcomer no he's a host too everybody in it they keep showing you the host the host day the host patterns going through these things how can you not like the show is telling you. You need to understand what it's like to be a host. Your main characters are basically hosts, and everyone you see who looks like an antagonist is a human. I mean, that's just episode one that, you know, obviously the humans come into it more as they go on. But from the get-go, right out the door, I'm like, oh, instead of this being a show about, like, Jurassic Park was about humans that end up in a park, and the dinosaurs are the threat, and it's a problem, and they resolve it. Spoilers. It's not going to be about humans coming into a park (laughs) and having a host be a problem. Yeah, Yeah. but you're not (laughs) empathetic towards the dinosaurs, is your point. Yeah, I, I'm saying like they they get into a situation where you're like, oh, our heroes are in danger because the thing that man has made has gone wrong. And in this one, <laughs> it's oh, our hosts are in danger because they have been made. That's what I loved about the first episode. They flipped the script on Crichton's original story. Thank God. You know, in Crichton's original story, the man in black is a robot menacing humans. You realize as you watch the first episode of the series that this is a show about robots fighting for their lives against humans who are terrorizing them. Yeah, and the man in black is a literally is a human terrorizing robots in, from the very start. Yeah, they set up all these wonderful misdirections, too, that play out. Some of them it takes until episode 10 to do, though. We assume the man in black is like a perverted, sadistic rapist, which is true in part, but not what we see, what we think he's doing to Dolores. Um, we don't actually know what he does in that barn. We don't know what the conversation is or what his behavior is because it's unclear what he wants out of her at that point right. in his history. Um, but there's like so many things, uh, you know, the reveries, the discussion of the reveries, which takes is sort of an arc across this, the whole thing. Uh, the coding errors, the, the Shakespeare being quoted, um, uh, the father being replaced, kind of showing the fact that even though the hosts have attachments to other people that are clear, sort of arise, that sets the tone for what happens with Maeve and Clementine later. It's pretty, uh, even the photograph, the photograph showing up, I forgot it was in episode one. I was just looking yeah. at the, the rundown and that photograph then becomes, you know, an arc to episode nine. Well, and the thing that I remember is that when we were, when Don and I were recording our first episode, because we didn't get off the ground until halfway through the season airing. So in our first episode, when we were talking about episode, about Westworld episodes one through five, uh, one of the things I said at that moment in episode five, oh, those days, remember those days? I said, here's the thing about this show is that the only characters I care about, the only characters I care for, the only ones I'm invested in are the hosts, except for Bernard. <laughs> oh, yes. I nice. said it. I said it out loud and everything. Kelly, I argued with you because the, the, the other, the one human character I had empathy with, who turns out is probably human, uh, was Ford. 
because I could sort of understand the creator's point of view. At the time, we weren't sure whether, you know, he was the kind grandfatherly guy or yeah, the he was still psychotic Victor Frankenstein kind of guy, <laughs> right? And it turned out he was pretty much both. Yes, yes, he was. He was both. It's so funny that, you know, when you think about one through five, we hadn't seen a whole heck of a lot from him as far as like intent and um, anything that you could clearly point at and go, yeah, see, he's a bad guy or yeah, see, he's a good guy. Like there really wasn't a lot for as much. It was it was funny to me as I started like looking at stuff later that he was always wearing black and white. And so it was one of those things where like you couldn't really tell. So at that moment, we still didn't really know. So yeah, Don was like, I, I sympathize. He's a creator. I know how that goes. I can see sort of standing in those shoes. And then we get to the infamous episode seven. And it turns out I was right. I was really only sympathizing with those. <laughs> and at that point, you know, it's only been two episodes later. And we're all like, oh, yeah. Ford is so terrible. And then, you know, from there, like just in the second half of the season, the journey that you go on as a viewer with what you feel about Ford in those last five episodes, the back five is intense. And the thing that I really liked about unwrapping this show, there was a fair amount of payoff for everything, but every payoff gave me eight more questions you know, or 12 more questions. And so I wanted to watch again and watch some more. The twists and the payoff, right? Yeah. The thing we coined on our show was we got nolan again. <laughs> and that was certainly true of episode 10. <laughs> yes. Does nobody have sympathy for Elsie and uh, Stubbs? I thought they established them not as entirely sympathetic, but they didn't seem purely awful. Stubbs was the cynical guy who kind of kept an eye on the hosts and we knew that he was advisable because we're watching or that was advisable we're watching westworld we know Stubbs will eventually be proven right right like he was right oh yeah They're, they are dangerous and he treated them like dangerous animals like he was in a jurassic park and everyone else i mean his staff did that Clever although they're girl. terrible shots turns out <laughs> they all went to the stormtrooper school of marksmanship they had not had a live fire episode in a long, a long time there they're real rusty elsie <laughs> i found sympathetic although creepy like you thought oh this is somebody who sort of enjoys her job, gets it, isn't dehumanizing. And then it's kind of like, oh, maybe she's, all right, maybe she, whatever. But I didn't feel like, I felt like they invested both those characters and kind of dropped them along the way. I think the reason you didn't empathize with the humans is because the humans, the way, I mean, it's, it's, I don't think it's an accident. I think it's the way the, the show is presented. For the human characters, with the exception of Bernard, haha, you mm -hmm. never, you never <laughs> got to see essentially their cornerstone. They ah. had all these scenes of the hosts Thinking back to pivotal moments in their past life, whether, you know, briefly glimpsed or understood or just reflecting. The hosts were always reflecting on things. Even when we just saw the hosts going through loops, it's like that we, we would imagine them reflecting on their pastime through the loop or whatever. The humans were always doing something in the moment and you were never seeing, like you never got to see into the humans. Surely, yeah. uh, you know, Elsie has a cornerstone or an equivalent, like they do that with all characters on television, but you only ever saw her in the moment doing a thing. And it was fun. She's on an adventure. She's a sleuth. She's trying to figure stuff out. She's got spunk. You know, she's, she's, uh, she is uh, s skeptical when other people are trusting. She doesn't really trust what Ford is doing, whereas Bernard seems for some strange reason to be, you know, pretty obedient to Ford, right? And so we root for her, but she's like a, a character on like, you know, I don't know, like NCIS or something where they have plot points that they go through and they have personality traits, but we never see their inner world. We never understand that the thing they're doing relates somehow to, uh, you know, 
a recent breakup or a, a thing they don't like about themselves or whatever. And in a show where that's right there on the page, like Jason said about storytelling, you can't help but think that it's intentional for us not to know the, the cornerstones of the humans, with the exception of maybe a little bit of Ford. We get to see a little bit of that. I actually have a theory about why Elsie and Stubbs are more sympathetic. Hmm. I think one of the things this show is about, uh, among the bajillion things this show is about, is it's a critique of the entitled rich. Um, studies have found in the real world that the richer you get, the less empathetic you are because the less you rely on other people and the more you see them as either, you know, employees or commodities or playthings. And that's what you see in Westworld. You see this whole park set up where rich people can come in and do whatever they want with no consequences, which is sort of like the real world. There's no relevance to 2016 to any of this, obviously. Well, Bank sorry. world was not as popular, but, you know, similar <laughs> setup. Well, it's, why do you need that? We already have that covered. So. Yeah, we live in so, Bank world. They, <laughs> yeah. they started writing this show before reality, unfortunately. Yeah, pan out, John, pan out. <laughs> you know, so the richer the characters are, the more powerful they are, the more horrible they are. Uh, Ford, the man in black, you know, they have a couple of glimmers of redeeming qualities, but those guys are straight up monsters, and I can talk more about that later. The farther down you go on the ladder, the, the more sympathetic the characters become. Stubbs is just a guy doing his job. He's not particularly sadistic. He's even somewhat respectful. Um, the, the scene where Clementine's programmed to, to start killing folks and he has to go put her down, he's trying not to shoot her at first. He's not doesn't just walk in and then be like, boom, oh, she's dead. Um, and, and the kindest human being in the show is just that lowly tech in the body shop who doesn't even really want to dominate robots. He, the thing he wants to do is fix a bird. And finally, finally, we're talking about the two stars of the show. Felix, <laughs> Felix and Sylvester. And Sylvester. Say, what, yeah. what about Sylvester? He's in the, he's the lowest rank that we see of employees in, in Westworld and he is not a nice person. So I that think is, he, that is true. A friend of mine on Twitter said she was, and I think this is by episode five. She said, I'm, she's Asian American was saying, I'm getting a little tired of the show being white people yelling at people of color. And I was like, I'm hoping, hoping, hoping they're setting this up for a reversal. And Sylvester was one of the people she's referring to is like him yelling at and like browbeating that guy. And I'm like, well, I guess it kind of got reversed on him. Yeah. <laughs> I really enjoyed the two of them because I sort of liked, I liked finding out that the corporation itself has people who work for it on sort of lower levels, you know, that are not executives, like the grunts, you know. Um, I've spent a lot of my professional career as sort of one of those people on the front lines of technical support, on the front lines of bug testing, things like that. And so it was sort of nice to see that you're going to portray a corporation to me, but you're not going to just show me the people on Mahogany Row. You're going to show me some of the day-to-day -day <laughs> folks who, like, go home and have a beer with their buddies and, you know, over their dollar PBRs, they whine about their jobs because their jobs suck, you know, in whatever way that is. So it was nice to me to see sort of regular people, I guess, because um, I sort of had a hard time relating to a lot of the higher level corporate intrigue like Charlotte and the board and Ford and even Bernard a little bit and Teresa because... Like, I'm not that person. I don't move in that world. I never had the office upstairs. Kelly, can I ask you a question? What you thought about Ford's office in that context? Because it was magnificent, but it was somewhere underground. We don't know how many yeah. levels deep. And he went you know, away from it. He could have obviously had an office that was in the top of the Mesa and seen his creation all the time. He didn't even have any, like, holographic display stuff. It was all very analog in his office. What do you think about that relative to that theory? 
Well, what I liked about seeing that and the fact that to me, what it showed was that he was sort of sentimental because I sort of assumed his office was kind of on the part of the same structure that we see initially, you know, the cold storage where the cooling has failed and like everything's sort of wet and dark. Um, in my mind, his office is not far from the place in cold storage where we find him having the drink with old Bill in episode one as they drink right. to the lady with the white shoes. And so I sort of, for me, that felt like one of the things that you can point at as he's a good guy because he didn't ever bother to move upstairs when they, when, when they, I assume expanded at some point and, you know, the building got taller or, um, you know, any of that stuff. Like he stayed sort of down there where it started and, he doesn't have any of that stuff in his office. Like, I, you know, he literally is giving Bernard the scoop on Arnold at one point as he stands in front of a chalkboard that's mm-hmm. written on with like recent stuff. Cause like the reverie stuff is like mapped out in a flowchart on a chalkboard in this, in this world where I'm sure every one of us at one point went, damn, I want one of those computers that f- unfolds when I take it out of my pocket, you know, because I know Don and I talked about that like every single oh, yeah. episode. Oh, um, they're going to have crack gate, though, because you can crack these things right in half. I saw a YouTube video. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you don't even have to try very hard, apparently. Being around a lot of development centers and, uh, and things like that in the software world, his office, to me, you know, just reeked of being a nerd. I mean, the things he had around him. The mm-hmm. fact that there were no windows. Mm-hmm. Well, it has a lot of like museum qualities to it, right? Like it's, right. it's this, yeah. where all this, and the, the other thing is, I get the feeling that, I mean, he obviously spends a decent amount of time walking around with supervising the work that's being done, but I feel like the storytellers for Westworld or in the, in the park probably wouldn't super enjoy like walking around or observing remotely what the guests are doing. Cause it's basically like their stories get fouled up, like, you know, some 80% of the time because, you know, the, the guest is new in town and they want to shoot somebody instead of talking to them and finding out what their quest is and going on the story that, that would be really frustrating just like probably you don't want to uh sit and watch people uh use software that you developed uh because you'd get really frustrated with how uh inefficient they would be oh that is so true uh, you have no well, idea the, the the writer as annoying as that writer is you know i there's some uh, let's talk about uh, we're already sort of into it the the computer aspect of it the behind the scenes aspect of it, which i kind of wasn't expecting i thought that would be much more kind of finessed of like well suffice it to say it's magic it happens but instead we see them talk we see Bernard and Elsie talking about it. We see um, the 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 writer uh, Lee Sizemore uh, whine about it, um, and he says at one point in a conversation with maybe Teresa, where he talks about how I come up with these great things, and then you know I have to do all these different branches. And I thought that was really interesting about them talking about like how do you script mm-hmm. this world? They didn't they 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 gave it more attention. It's not like they explained all of how it works, but they gave it more attention than I expected, and I thought it was really interesting to see that that aspect of it you know be, the the branching of the dialogue when we see into uh into the mind of the host and how they have their conversations and how they're scripted for that uh and the people who are working on the software patches the fact that we've got this idea of like rolling people back to a previous version there's all this kind of like software terminology that's happening about the minds of the hosts i i really love that aspect and that was a real surprise to me that that we spent a lot of time with sort of the technology of the mind and the scripting of Westworld. Unlike most sci-fi shows that do AI, they didn't, it wasn't like, you know, like HAL 9000 or we're fascinated by the idea that machines can think. Instead, all of the computer stuff 
well, A, Blessedly was far future enough where we can just, we can hand wave a lot of it as magic as well. Like they're super advanced, right? But B, it was treated as game development. If you know anything about game development, oh. they were talking like a bunch of game developers, yeah. not like a bunch of people yeah. building HAL 9000. It's all about, uh, you know, Agreed. linear storylines versus player action versus yep. making them resilient and tweaking parameters and letting them go through these game loops. Like, and which is a refreshing change because normally anything having to do with thinking computers is all about deep thoughts about how these computers and there's plenty of that in Westworld too but totally the people who are running this show they're they're it's a game they're yeah. game developers yeah i had a lot of red dead redemption feels while while watching this which is, you know. <laughs> no the man in black is bored because he's played every every inch of the game he's yeah. trying to get he's yeah, yeah. he's trying to collect all the gems now right to get his bonus he's basically been using cheat codes right and yeah. now he he wants to play the yeah. the real game that's actually going to be hard for him and the poor writer, like when he's got the new speech for the for Hector to give at the end of the thing, and it's like when when you have a game and there's a sp- and there's a big cutscene and you walk away from it, and like in an open world game, you walk outside the audio radius, and it's like, yeah, no, I'm not interested in the writer. It's like, but but this is the pivotal moment now. I gotta, I gotta go over here and dig in the dirt. <laughs> Actually, John, something that you mentioned that I, I wanted to I wanted to um, riff on a little bit is, I, I think you could argue. And and nobody's going to argue that the hosts are not emerging into being thinking beings of some kind. At least I think very few people would argue that because what are we watching otherwise? But what I like about the show is that it it challenges your assumptions all the way through episode 10 about whether the hosts, whether everything the hosts do is emergent and because they're free thinkers or whether they are... They are operating on their programming, and the example in episode 10 is that Maeve is shown a script that she's been given that describes her rebellion in the sequences of it. And, <laughs> and, and at several points, we have, we have moments like that, yeah. right, where you're like, wait a second, so are, am I seeing the legitimate person who's emerging from this this uh, host, or is this part of the script? And right down to the fact that the uprising as revealed at the end of episode 10 by Ford is his new narrative. It's like, well, wait a second. Are they uprising because he's giving the ability for them to rebel? Right. Or are they are they rising up because he's written a rebellion? Well, is there really a difference? Like, that's the... <laughs> I know, you know right? That's the, the question yeah. the show wants to exactly. ask, is there really a difference? But, like, they do, they do highlight at the very end with Maeve. They, I mean, like, the show, the show is uh, remarkable to me in the number of times that it puts legit solid non-misleading information in the show like episodes and episodes ahead like five six episodes ahead they don't put just like vague hints that you can just go back and and see oh i see how that connected they put like actual real information actionable information that's why the whole internet figured out so many of the twists um and so in episode 10 they do that thing oh maybe surprised to see that her whole escape has been planned right but in that scene, they purposely tell you, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, you're going to recruit the people, you're going, get, you're going to get on the train, and when you get to the mainland, yada, 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 and she cuts them off. And then they show her at the end, she deviates yeah, from that. That's they were exactly reading her right. the script. The script was, you get on the train. And so the show is very explicitly saying, even though uh, the reveal here is that everything has been planned, we are going to show you, except for the last part, where Maeve did something different. And you may think, oh, well, that that means Maeve is deciding on her own. But like every single other story in the park, it can be interrupted by the human players. And so Felix gives her a note, and she decides to get off the train, just like Hector getting shot in the head before I can give a speech. I want to talk a second about about this notion, though, of the telling stories, because I took a um, – there's nothing more dangerous than someone who takes a meditation class, I realize. But I took an uh, insight meditation class a few years ago, and one of the things the instructor talked about a lot was stories we tell ourselves about what we're doing that are stories we layer on top of that don't necessarily have – 
a direct relationship with what we're doing, but we tell ourselves they do. And as I'm watching this show, I'm like, well, A, Nolan and Joy, maybe they're insight meditation people because they're talking from that book. But B, a lot of it is about, it's a story of the man in black. I mean, it's all stories we tell ourselves, but that exact notion that the host, when I saw Maeve, when she's watching her words play out in front of her, as she's saying them oh, and my going God. into that error state, I thought this is exactly, this is the breaking out of the monkey mind thing that they talk about in meditation, about getting the monkey mind to stop talking at you so you can achieve higher insight and stop telling these stories about yourself. And it was just, it was beautifully exploded there without having to, they didn't have someone come and say, well, meditation, the human mind, like I'm doing right now. They let us explore and see that. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see uh, the man in black and Ford and the stories they tell themselves and how that conflicts with the story you can see in them. Uh, Ford is is a spoiled child who who doesn't want anyone else playing with his toys. And, and that was what I took from his, the final rebellion. Uh, he, he clearly knew the board was trying to force him out. He clearly knew he only had so much time. So my view of, of the ending is that he basically is like, well, if I can't have this, you can't either. So I'm going to smash all my toys and, and use them to hurt you because that was that was his childhood. Well, but he, he was atoning. I mean, like, there's an angle that like, I don't them, know. No, win, he was telling. But... I think he was telling himself he was atoning. He he knew he had to be the monster to get his creations to the the point uh, of true consciousness, and he had to pay for that. I think he thought he was atoning. I think that's what he told himself. But really, he just wanted to be in control. He didn't want his creations to really get to the point of full consciousness on their own. He wanted to be the one who gave them that gift so that he could go out as as God, as the guy calling the shots, controlling the story. I'm, I'm with Nathan. <laughs> Same with the man in black. The man in black says, you know, I was trying to get them to fight back. He he thinks of himself as this hero who is giving this great gift to the robots. He is, by, by brutally torturing them for his own sick jollies, he is actually liberating them. But no, he's just a scorned adolescence. He, he thinks... Uh, when, when he was William, he thought that Dolores was his prize, that if he won Westworld, Dolores would be his prize. And then he realized she wasn't his prize, that she, you know, maybe she wasn't autonomous, but she didn't belong to him. And he got angry and he started taking that on on Dolores and everyone around him, just like you see with a lot of 20-something gamers. Um, and so he's basically just acting out and all of his bored meanderings around the park and, and torturing people and blowing stuff up. It's just him throwing a fit for the, all the rest of his life because he wanted this shiny woman prize and he didn't get it. That's my theory. I'm with you on the man in black, but I don't yeah. see it with four. Like man in black, yeah, that's exa- absolutely what they what his story is, the story he's telling himself and what we see him doing. And I think he t- turns too much on a dime in a few places because we don't get it developed enough because they're too busy uh, hiding the twist for you for most of the season but ford i really believe the, the way anthony hopkins played it and and the few things he has that that he his he was sincerely motivated the story he tells himself is the accurate story it's a story of a man who has done terrible things who does not think much of himself but nevertheless still believes and actually is smarter than almost everyone around him bringing a plan to fruition to both atone for his past sins and right his wrongs and try with some finality to, you know, he's got, he gets got the blood sacrifice. He's setting the stage for all the things that he's done wrong to correct themselves. Um, and everything he says in the show, I, I, I think he believes about how the hosts and humans are really no different from each other. And when he says, gives that speech somewhere in the middle, it's like, you think he's saying it to show how little he thinks of humans, but by the end you realize he's saying it to say how much he thinks of hosts. And in fact, when he says that they're better, it's not a sarcastic evil thing to put down humans. 
uh, he really believes it. So I'm with you. Completely on agree. I, think I, I take Ford at face value. That's fair enough. I, I like that there's that ambiguity there. That that I can have my interpretation and you can have yours and yours sounds just as valid to me as mine. So I like that about the show. <laughs> For me, there's a piece of it that we don't that we we haven't even considered at least on the show anyway. Um, and that is, I sort of felt like uh, once now that we know what happened to Arnold, not to Bernard, but to Arnold. Now that we know what happened to Arnold. We've seen the ending of that story. I feel like this was almost make him trying to give a gift back to Arnold because remember Arnold gave him a yeah. gift of here is your family, like the the best moment your you have, and and you know I'm going to give you I'm going to preserve that moment for you. I'm going to put it right here in the park in a little house, and nobody's going to be able to tell, and and we'll make sure it's like this little secret. I built you a dad that you remember or whatever, and then I feel like a little bit like he, you know, because he he mentions a few times like Arnold came to feel the way you did. Arnold came at this from a different way, whatever, and I think that that he is sort of trying to atone to Arnold. I feel like he feels like he needs to do it in Arnold's name almost, that he needs to be able to do this to sort of settle what he believes to be the score that he has with Arnold and sort of try to, to you know, get the red out of his ledger. So I, to me, that was, that was more what it felt like was that um, that was the humanitarian piece of it, the piece of humanity within Ford that we hadn't seen was how truly profoundly he had been affected by Arnold dying. I, I like um, what, what Nathan said about uh, how you can really interpret this either way. And I'm struck by something John said, which is that he he thinks that, uh, you know, Ford, this is what Ford believes. And I think that's right. I think he does believe it. I'm not sure if that's actually the case and that it isn't, you know, he, that's the story he tells himself when he's still just kind of being a jerk who wants to have complete control over everything. <laughs> he's a jerk and he likes besting people, but I believe it too. Like, I believe that it, basically he's he strikes me as sad throughout the whole series, that he is not, uh, uh, you know, be, uh, lording uh, it over to people and being smarter and controlling the whole time. He doesn't like who he is or how things have turned out, and he is sad. I think I'm Team Nathan on this, but I want to go to Tony because Tony Tony proclaimed his his being on on Nathan's side on Ford here too. Tony, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe I can just never be uh, sympathetic to you know rich white powerful industrialist guy who I, I almost could say evil in there. But I guess that's the contention is is he evil or not? But I mean, I, I guess it depends on how you uh, read his his last scene there. But I mean, I mean, I just see it as the culmination of of him basically. Uh, setting into motion his own pretentious suicide where he even gives the speech about how uh the the composers that d that don't really die because they live on in their music and he's like and i'm going to live on in my killer robots he gives um, his speech he gives it a title right he's got a title yeah. for it in his uh, press conference at the beach why why does he have to do all that? <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, if he is not a warped and twisted self-absorbed uh you know yeah, I, I mean, and and I guess the, the the question is is what stuff is is all. I am interested to know what will, will happen at the start of season two in terms of what will give us information about how what stuff is things that are exactly as he laid them out versus actual freedom that he has granted because that's that's still the question to me is how much I mean is there actual any freedom here or is everybody just doing things that he has set in motion? 
I just want to bring up something that John Syracuse said that's relevant, but very briefly, which is just like John said, they laid, um, <clears throat> excuse me, breadcrumbs where we could see them. It wasn't, you know, they were barely, you know, there's all over the lawn and we have to figure out which they are. We saw Ford's family, right? We saw his house. We saw him as a young man. We saw his abusive father. We saw Ford tell Bernard that he'd sort of toned the father down. Like out of kindness, Arnold had made the father not quite as bad as he was, <laughs> right? So, like so many things, we see Ford is reliving his childhood. Like, how much time does he spend in that cottage? He seems to be there a lot. It's kind of creepy, right? And we know that there's the basement lab, but um, he's constantly, or constantly, or in some manner, reliving it. And Arnold, at some level, made a trap for Ford by building Ford his childhood and not allowing, and would Ford ever destroy his childhood? Not really. Ford is a fascinating character, right? I mean, that that's the bottom line yeah. here, is he's complex and we can question mm-hmm. his motivations uh, right to the end of his last job. For me, having a front row seat at the Ford of our generation, uh, Steve Jobs, <laughs> there were a lot of things that reminds me a, a lot of SJ's last year, you know, when he knew that he was going to go. It was very, very striking to me. People, you know, you look at some things on the surface of what they do, and they seem selfish and self-serving, and they might seem grandiose, but in the end, they really are done for the right reasons. And so I will give Ford a pass just for that last half an hour he had on earth hmm. uh, of doing the right thing. So, but, but it really, it really hit home with me on a very, uh, very personal note there of, of having the opportunity a couple of times to be up close to people like that. Well, let's not go too far with the right thing, because he did send a, a what seems like a large number of killer robots into a crowd of people. So like, he's no angel, like right up at the end. And he he did he did have a woman murdered several episodes earlier to make sure that nothing got in his way yeah, of yeah, sending no, like right. an army of killer robots. What are you telling us about Apple products, Don? This is disturbing. And again, not too far off from some of the people I work with. Whoa, Jesus, we're all going to get killed, aren't we? Those top 100 meetings order must have been rough. Huh? You have no idea. So you have to answer this question if we ask it. How many killer robots do you have in your house right now <laughs> You're right. just blink once if there are more than one yeah all right don is team killer robot it's good to know that that's important to establish no the the, the thing is you have to ask, uh, ask yourself about the you know the sort of theme or the end of the whole show is that the robot who becomes finally self-aware and listens to her own inner voice and her own inner voice is telling her to be a homicidal <laughs> maniac <laughs> so that's a pretty yeah pretty funny you know journey she's got wine yeah. mixed in there too it's a, it's a heady stew yes it's a toxic yes. health stew in there <laughs> i wanted to uh maybe shift gears a little bit and talk about one of the other i mean it's an hbo show right so you you can know you can get a lot of violence you can get a lot of language and you can get a lot of nudity now westworld has a lot of nudity but what's fascinating about it is it is mostly on like robots that are nude and in the repair shop in the blue doctor office the cold blue lighting and stuff like that and uh and you know the nudity in westworld uh starts out you may be asking yourself like oh well it's hbo of course there's going to be nudity and very rapidly becomes a fascinating choice of how they depict it and i wanted to to know if uh uh, nathan said that he wanted to talk about it nathan do you have uh, something you'd like to say about this one when you go into an HBO show, you expect naked ladies. You expect a lot of naked ladies, and you expect them to be very, very naked. Um, and I love that Westworld inverts that. 
I love that Westworld, um, after the first few episodes, whenever you there's a naked lady in a scene, chances are she is the most powerful and dangerous person in the room. <laughs> um, Maeve is sitting there, and whenever, you know, Maeve can be perfectly naked, and Felix and Sylvester can be there, and ostensibly they're the technicians, and they have all the power. But it is clear from her body language, from her affect, and from the way they react to her, Maeve has all the power. And then you get, uh, I forget her name, but Ingrid Brosso, uh Berdahl, the awesome, awesome Ingrid Bolso Berdahl, whose name I'm probably mangling. Armistice, right? Armistice. Armistice. Yeah. Uh, yeah, when she's completely naked and beating the holy oh, yeah, living yeah. crud out of multiple technicians, and deservedly so, and then is doing those countless tiny hilarious things like poking at Felix's hair curiously or things like that, and is just absolutely terrifying. They, they make a point that you can't treat these women like eye candy. They're not there for you to ogle at. It's not sexualized nudity, in other words. Exactly. <laughs> One of the things I liked about it was that it seemed a little more fair. <laughs> I have sat through more than my share of topless ladies on HBO shows. Yeah. And so it was nice to see some dudes that weren't wearing any clothes, mm. mostly like, you know, straight up in the interest of fairness. It was because particularly the way they were handling the nudity, it wasn't sexy. It wasn't naughty time. It wasn't pants off, dance off. It wasn't anything like fun. It was just like <laughs> they're naked. So you can tell they're the, they're the robots yeah, sort of. It's the power and so it, difference. You know, so it stands to reason that there are going to be some guy robots and it stands to reason that if you make them all be naked when they're in the shop, so to speak, this is what, you know, you're going to see some. So I liked it for being realistic in that way. And Armistice had, by the way, my favorite moment in episode 10, and it was when she gets the automatic weapon and she laughs that laugh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she laughed a laugh of such joy and love. I hope I have ever in my life liked anything that much and enjoyed it because, boy, did she enjoy it. She did enjoy shooting all those people. <laughs> it was aw- <laughs> and it was awesome to watch her enjoy it. It wasn't like I, I, I wasn't really jazzed about her, like killing all those people. But it was pretty amazing to watch her enjoy it the way that she did. But- the, the dehumanization was interesting, though, too, because Ford's insistence. They, I, I thought when the show started, I thought this is creepy that they're always having all the hosts naked. They don't always need to be prodding them. And then that scene, was it maybe episode three or four? I was I surprised. Think, yeah. yeah, and Ford turns to the technician. He's in the middle of something else. He turns to them. Why, do you have, why are they covered? You know, and they takes the X-Acto knife or scalpel. Mm-hmm. and sl- I'm a graphic designer. It must have been an X-Acto knife. And slashes his face. <laughs> and I thought it was the most unkind and most demeaning thing We'd seen Ford do because he had a certain kind of respect. Yeah, because he respected – at that point, you think he respects them as – as a work that he's created and, um, you know, respects him as a, a piece of uh, a craft. And I was horrified by that. I'm not sure that scene worked for me in terms of his character, but I think I'm still integrating what it means. But they, the, I thought we're, this is, this is Nolan and Joy making us collaborators. We're watching a show about ostensible robots. We're watching the nudity. We're uncomfortable with it. We have a proxy who is also uncomfortable with it. He covers them and force says, no, no, no. It's not that easy. We're pulling the cover away. You, viewer, have to watch this and yeah. be complicit in what we're doing here. Yeah, the meta storytelling in this show uh, was awesome. It's a show about writing a show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, clear, yeah. it clearly, at several points, is, uh, you know, right? And you end up with like a play within a play because Westworld's kind of a play within a play. But then we find out that, you know, the plot of the show Westworld is kind of a play within a play itself, which is great. And, mm-hmm. and, and there's the question of, I mean, not... 
uh, not to get into free will or something like that. You can listen to John's podcast with Merlin when they talk about that. But the idea of of uh, scripted reactions and that question of like, is this a natural reaction or is this a scripted reaction? And does it matter? And are they making decisions? And it, yeah, so much of it, it, it is very meta and very carefully considered. I like that about it. It's like you can be meta, but I felt like every move that this show made was very seriously thought out in advance and made knowingly which isn't always the case yes it's so weird in a show that ha- about that's a tv show of any kind to have a writer who is unsympathetic for some reason and sizemore yeah. gets so ford is the sympathetic writer but then we have all these complicated feelings about him sizemore is the unsympathetic <laughs> writer we hate this guy right he's well, sympathetic because he's so human yeah. though like yeah, his, his concerns right. are so petty and so it's such a such a small scale they're really important to him but we're watching this show and we're like dude you're not even in the game you're just down there complaining <laughs> about you know odyssey on red river he's, he's <laughs> off in his own little corner ford is the showrunner and uh sizemore is the staff writer <laughs> right well, and yes. not even that though because 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 uh, uh, Sizemore thinks he is the showrunner, but like see, Ford, Ford is the writer of the series that we watched that with the audience <laughs> watch. Because in the end, we realized that Ford has plotted out the entire first season. We don't, we don't know that when we're watching it, but in the end, the story that we see is for the most part his story, and then. The other writer is writing these little adventures that the humans are doing in their park and getting all cranky about it and, and angling for positions in this corporate world that's totally not going to matter. Although it's nice that he lives because he's down there in the empty cellar looking for the robots that aren't there. <laughs> that aren't and there. everyone else is, is going to you know, get be shot by the by robots. The, uh, yeah. The all his ideas forward. are gone. He opens up his idea vault and they're all gone. Yeah. Wh- one of the moments that Sizemore gets there at the end that I thought uh, that it's easy to miss is that there's a. So there are a lot of threads that are dangling that are going to be presumably resolved in season two or at least continued in season two. One one of them is this idea that the board, knowing that they're going to fire Ford, is trying to uh, get the source code, basically, of the park out before Ford can wreck it. And uh, they stow it in uh, in a host who's in cold storage. So, And Sizemore is supposed to get him to a... T- he's programmed him to behave kind of like a regular person to get him on the train out of... Out of uh, and ironically, of course, there is a host on the train. It's not this guy. But he goes there and fi- and there's just that one shot of going and opening cold storage and finding there's nothing inside. And he goes, what? And that's it. Wouldn't Sizemore or uh, Charlotte Gale know that if you do that with a host, they would explode? The the sixth cervical vertebrae would explode? Well, they, I could, mean, they could rip that part out or deactivate it. I mean, they have all the tools to get The people in the body shop, maybe the only way they can do it is make a new one without that vertebrae, but the people who run the show surely can disable it. And whatever. even if it does blow up, then they can still just take the yeah, brain. The That's head. it, right? There you go. Or he only needs to make it to the train. Like, we don't know, you know, or HQ or whatever. Like, we don't, we don't know exactly what See, right. but, you know, this is the kind get. of crap you have to you, you have to do when you can't find a USB drive. <laughs> right, yeah, you, See, but that's good security. Forget about a thumb drive. They need the whole head. It pops off and there's a USB part. At the the end. better question is the host that they chose to be the flash drive is Abernathy Prime. Yeah. Yeah. The first Dolores's dad that we see on the show. The one, the first one to break, the one who finds the picture of who I presume grew up to be William's wife. Yes, I assume yeah. so. We get to episode nine, where Bernard explains that they put Clementine in storage, but that they didn't fix anything when they put her there. So she still has the capability to pull the trigger and do some damage. 
if he gives her the high sign. Right. And I wondered if Abernathy Prime was in the same position. Hmm. And maybe they picked like the worst possible host in cold storage to be the guy because we know, you know, we know that any host can go at any moment. And we know he was like in the show order. He was the first one to go. And he used to play a psychotic desert cult something, leader, right, in the earlier plot. Yeah. The leader of a cannibal cult. Well, it's law of conservation of characters, though. I mean, they're not going to have one of the extras be the one that they put the secret plans in, right? I thought that Maeve, maybe. It, somehow they had chosen Maeve and they were using her to smuggle stuff out. Oh. Uh, yeah. At a certain point, though, you figure Dallas has got to realize uh, Ford's plan is not to destroy all the source code. So all our efforts to smuggle her out are stupid. Yeah. They find out what Ford's actual plan is, which is way worse for them. Is, you know, kill you all at your party. <laughs> right. right? Like, oh, we thought he was going to delete our source. So no, he's going to kill us all with the robots. That's okay. We'll always have Samurai World. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about the casting call, though, for the cold storage. It's like, okay, we need to come out. You're going to be naked. I assume some of that might be CGI, of course, CG. But you're going to be naked, standing in a cold, like, dark, <laughs> dark warehouse, standing in water for probably several hours a day for a couple weeks. We need you to stand in a puddle in the dark under the least flattering possible lighting, naked. like, all day. Hey, it's work. Lunch will be provided. Hey, and don't move. Yeah. And I guarantee you, they had people standing in line <laughs> that were turned away for that job. <laughs> Absolutely. They were, you were talking earlier about the, the meta aspect of the show. And when the board is talking about uh, about taking over Ford's narrative, they're like, you know, don't make it too complex. Kind of just simplify it. Make yeah. it more entertaining for people. I'm thinking mm-hmm. Jonathan Nolan is flashing back to his time on Person of Interest, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is what executives say, right? I've got some notes, they say. I would also like to say, I think that this is also a show about watching television. I think, oh, note that the whole point of, of the thing is the maze and the man in black is pursuing the maze. He's looking for that trick. He's looking for the reveal, the the twist in the game. <laughs> and people keep telling him, it's not for you. That's not the point of the game for you. And he doesn't get that. How many times has he told that on the show? Like 900 times and he never gets it through his thick skull. The maze exactly. is not for you. Hey, wait, are you saying the maze isn't for me? Hmm. Let me think on this. <laughs> and so everyone is, well, he's rich. So he yeah, thinks yeah. everything is for him, whether people tell him it is or everything not. Everything's for him. Yeah. Nathan, you need to go and tell all the people on Reddit this story. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's the thing. Yes. Uh, I think all the people on Reddit, all the theorizing I've seen, you know, is Bernard an android? What What is the role of the ghost nation? Are there multiple timelines? Is William the Man in Black? Jonathan Nolan must have anticipated that. And Lisa Joy must have anticipated that. And I think they put in the maze to say, guys, guys, you're missing the point. It's not about hmm. the twists. It's not about the tricks. It's about the search for consciousness. That's what the show's about. The tricks and things are just window dressing. And I loved that aspect. Yeah, but they'll, they'll, they'll sling people along that way. This is a show that, that sort of forces you to take it seriously and forces you to pay attention <laughs> and presumes that you have a certain level of understanding and comprehension whatever that is because for me what was really great about it was that um i was forced to pay attention and i don't watch a whole lot of television because i don't like tv where you tell me what's gonna happen for the next hour in the first five minutes of the show and i don't want to see it coming and in fact, like the only way I want to see it coming is when I see it coming about 90 seconds before it actually shows up. Like I was telling Don last night when we recorded our initial reaction show, our quick initial reaction show for episode 10, which was 45 minutes, um, that when you know that the train has left the station, you've seen that happen. And now you see a car stop on the tracks 
you know, waiting for the light to change or whatever. When you know those two things and now the tension is, oh God, I know all of this, what's going to happen? That's the kind of show I like to watch. And so for me, it was really exciting to see somebody put out this intelligent show and go, it's intelligent and we're going to leave little breadcrumbs about other stuff that's going to happen and maybe you'll catch them and maybe you won't. And I really liked how they kept everybody up to speed even when... You know, even on like, you know, Reddit had figured it out already or whatever, um, being able to make sure that people who weren't paying attention to message boards and people who don't read all the theory stuff were kept engaged. And yet also people who did go theorize about all that stuff and did, um, you know, think about it in their spare time and randomly text uh, nerd retired friends of theirs who don't have anything else to do and say, you know, I was huh. thinking about this hmm. and what happens if that happens? And <laughs> Uh, you know, I've heard, um, like those are the kind of things that I really enjoyed about this show because I really liked that they were sort of upfront about being an intelligent piece of cinema mm -hmm. for, I mean, cause that's what it is. And I really enjoyed getting to watch it. I also love that it was all those things, and it was just a great Western. Westworld gives good yep. Western. You've got Indian attacks. You've got yes, an armored sir. train. You've got robberies and twists and shootouts. That amazing sequence with the men in black tied up to his horse and having to, to cut himself free before the horse hangs him. <laughs> I just love that it was a satisfying Western in addition to being all those other things. So I I, uh, I want to talk a little bit about expectations for season two, but before we get there, there's one other point that I wanted to to have us dwell on for a moment, which is the cast, because there are some people we haven't even talked about. We've talked about Anthony Hopkins, who does a great job. Ed Harris as the Man in Black, uh, and and Jimmy Simpson as his uh, younger counterpart is an interesting character. But also Evan Rachel Wood as Dolores, who we haven't really talked about at all, and uh, and Thandie Newton as Maeve, who initially you think is going to be kind of part of the. Uh, part of the ensemble and then becomes pivotal as the time goes on. Jeffrey Wright, James Marsden. It's such a great cast. The woman who's, whose name I can't pronounce, who plays Teresa, is also a really interesting actress. There's just, it's an amazing cast of people. Wood is so good. I almost don't single her out because her performance is so perfect that it's, it's funny. It's like part of the, it's such an integral part of the show. She almost doesn't stand out for how good she is. Yeah, there, there are no weak links in this cast. I was really surprised pleasantly by Tessa Thompson, who I'd heard about but hadn't seen before. And then Jeffrey Wright. I mean, this is a man who can steal a scene right out from under Al Pacino. If you've ever seen uh, <laughs> Angels in America, he he <laughs> wipes the, the floor with Al Pacino in a monologue that once you've seen it, you'll never forget it. I'd watch Jeffrey Wright read the phone book. And if you've got to have somebody to stand up to Anthony Hopkins, you get Jeffrey Wright. Bingo. He is, uh, for, for the record, Jeffrey Wright is playing essentially the same character I think he was playing in Source Code, but it's a good character, oh. and I like that movie. So it's fine. I, I saw Jeffrey Wright with the glasses <laughs> and all that, and I'm like, oh, I get it. I get what he's doing here. And then there was way more there. That's exactly what I thought when I first saw right? it. So. It's the same thing. It's like <laughs> yeah. I'm sort of in charge of people who are technical, and there's a secret, and it's like, oh, yeah, okay, I've seen Jeffrey Wright in this before, but he's, he's really good. The person who really surprised me and I just didn't know she was that good uh, actress was because I know Tandy Newton is a great actress. You know, you've seen Crash or something like that. But Evan Rachel Wood. Yeah. Who knew yeah. that she could do that? Oh, my God. That last scene where she's talking to Wyatt and it's just two completely mm -hmm. different people who happen to be the same actress. That's that's Tatiana Maslany level mm -hmm. stuff right there. Mm -hmm. oh, oh, yeah. yeah. That just gets you creeping up over the back of your chair. I mean, I expect great performances from Anthony Hopkins and Ed Harris. 
and even people like Jimmy Simpson, uh, you know, because they they're known names. But unless you've seen across the universe right. and maybe a few weird commercials here and there, you've never seen Rachel uh, Evan Rachel Wood. No, I never had any expectations for her because I don't think I'd seen her in anything before. So she just seemed like an expected level of phenomenal. Yeah, it was delightful seeing her in that opening scene with uh the fly crawling across her yeah. face yeah she was the star of the first episode like especially in that ending part with the blood on her face and everything and then she's in yeah. the, she's in the emotions off mode and they ask her to tell her about your tell me about your world and then the smile comes back on her face she says this world like she all these characters get to repeat it's kind of a fun thing to do kind of a uh, orphan black style they get to repeat the same actions and the same lines multiple times each time with the they know that the audience knows more about themselves and even though like they give slightly different performances but every time they they do the same loop groundhog day, groundhog style, day style yeah it takes yeah, it yeah. takes on a different meaning and i think a lot of evan rachel wood in, in the beginning it's like oh she's playing the perfect farmer's daughter which is who she's supposed to play in the world and with her slapping the fly in her neck after episode one i was like oh you gotta watch out for that one but as the season wore, <laughs> wore on as the season wore exactly. on it's like okay wow. well she maybe i was wrong about that because i see they're doing Maeve's storyline and she just mostly seems confused and and you know and she's like she wasn't she wasn't becoming like the dangerous leader of the robot rebellion until the end and then I, by the end of it like you're so used to her being the farmer's daughter and and you know she means well and everything well she opened up a can of whoop ass in uh, episode five contrapasso sure when she's with william and he, right well, she, and gets she, the, she gets the, her pants on instead of her skirt and she's got her gun and all stuff like that but you know you know that's in the past eventually like for her character to turn to the end to be to be what, what she has mean. to become like that was such a great uh climax to the thing and the actress <laughs> pulled it off like she I, I believed her as the scary dangerous eventual leader of this whole thing and it's to do that after a whole season. right when she comes up behind teddy and says it's okay oh. it's gonna be okay teddy yeah <laughs> you know, it's, our, it's our world not theirs right the moment uh in episode one that is the thing that that they they hang on evan rachel wood and dolores that you have to remember the rest of the the show is there's a great little bit of uh, it, it's world building uh, but it also shows you the levels of like programming in these on these uh, house is they actually tell her to cut out the accent right and she goes yeah. from mm -hmm. having that kind of country accent to being a completely affectless sort of like generic accent and it's that I moment of like she says no she says no no yeah oh yeah it's like yeah, oh man like, right every, everything you do is such, yeah. such a strange strange treatment and, and all the actors all, all the ones who are playing hosts are so very good at be, being inhuman when they're supposed to be and switching right back yeah. to being human. I mean, it's probably an exercise that actors do, like, you know, right. turn it off and turn it back on, but now it serves a story purpose. And actors do accents all the time, too, but but in the, yeah, in the show you see it and you're like, oh, you know, like that, that informs Dolores, and it is a good performance. All right, so uh, 10 episodes, we're over, it's done, and it's not coming back for a year, so I have to ask before we go, where do we go from here? We saw a glimpse of Samurai World, maybe, and we've got a robot uh, uprising happening. We see Dolores shoot a bunch of people, but we don't see exactly who she shoots, which is nice to keep your options open. Obviously, Ed Harris, <laughs> the man in black, has been shot. He's been winged by a by a gunshot from, and he's delighted. And by he it. is delighted he by that. Oh yeah. So what 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 are your expectations? What 
what are you curious about? What do you want to see? So in my in my fondest dreams, uh, I, I hope <laughs> that the way this show stays fresh, because this is a problem. Like I think season one, you have a beautiful tight season one, which I think they did that, you know, ha- had an arc and did it and delivered and was very mm-hmm. satisfying and just overall like a beautiful little gem, right? It's hard to repeat that because all the things they revealed are already revealed. And if you're going to turn this into a show of reveals, it's hard to keep it fresh. Just ask the people lost. My dream is that the next season somehow evolves to have a different setting. We saw Samurai World. Uh, There could be multiple parks. I would love season one to be the old West season and season two of the increasingly inappropriately named Westworld to be all about samurai and season three to be about ancient Rome and season four, like just to keep like to keep it fresh by changing the setting. uh, That would make it so it's not just like you're not just watching a Western season after season after season, because that I mean, that's problematic in that, you know, you would imagine that uh, if something goes wrong with the old West Park, maybe they would bury it and, and build star wars land on top of it or whatever right hmm. like that's a way to keep the show fresh so my hope is that the show i'm trying to think of another show that does this a lot um i guess maybe the 100 the 100 does not get stuck in a rut the, whatever you want to say about the 100 they jump from premise and surrounding and context and and characters to the next the next through the multiple seasons so i was excited by seeing samurai world and that's what i hope and you know realistically speaking i'm assuming anthony hopkins is not coming back so i'm not going to make any predictions about oh that wasn't really him it was the host version uh, i don't think he's coming back for another season although that would be a great plot twist probably not as um, but, for every episode yeah yeah, yeah but like but Flat this was back. a great setup and it seems like the next season i would like a new setting and i would like the robot rebellion to be forcefully quashed in a way that is disappointing to viewers only to have it bubble back up and have that all happen in a samurai setting with new characters, like because they'll have to get some new hosts in the mix. Um, but after that season one, they can go almost anywhere. Anywhere that doesn't involve Anthony Hopkins, they can go. And they have, you know, if, if the same crew is involved and they have the same tight storytelling, like that's that's the, the my my takeaway from season one is they were so careful to build this into a thing that makes sense. And I like them both satisfying the internet fanatics by putting so many hints in there if you were a fanatic, you figured it out way, way early. But also the internet fanatics necessarily spun off into crazy theories that didn't make sense. And it's like, don't overthink it, guys. Our, our things make sense. They're not fantastical. We're not trying to trick you. They played fair with all of their things. And on the other side are the people who aren't obsessively reading fan sites. And they just they just kept putting information down episode after episode. See this? See this? See this? Like four episodes worth of hints for the man in black and William, right? To bring, and then by the time they did the final reveal, they did the reveal like nine times to make sure is everybody getting it? Yeah. Match cut, putting the hat on, like, and then they have to have them say the words "I am William." In some ways, like, I find that less satisfying than a show that demands that everybody be everybody get the one morsel that they drop, right? Because those shows are sometimes fun, but they're not fun for most people because if you miss the morsel, well, then you feel like you have to read a fan site to figure out what the hell is going on. Westworld let everybody have that car on the train tracks and train moment whenever they had that moment. It didn't demand that everybody have it all at the same time. That's exactly what happened for my wife. You know, she figured it out right uh, before she watched episode 10. 
Yeah. And and it, and any anytime you have that moment as long as it's like as long as you think of it as being before the quote unquote reveal, it's satisfying because you're like, yeah, exactly. "Oh, I, I mean, I had the same thing. I'm like, "Oh, I see what they're like with the split timelines when I had that revelation which was after the internet but before, you know, three episodes before the quote unquote real reveal. Once I saw that they were doing like this the big smile comes across your face and then and then after the show I'm frantically going to the internet to make sure I'm not crazy. I'm like, "No, the internet has it all, <laughs> yeah. has it all figured out beforehand." Wait, you went to the internet to find out you're not crazy? <laughs> Get it. Get a second opinion. Um, yes. Yeah. So, so season one, I, I think, and I think that's novel because, like I said, most shows either don't aren't well constructed or are dishonest with their plot points, or like they don't play fair. You know what I mean? They're like, aha, we're smarter than you. We're going to trick you. Oh, you didn't play fair, right? Or everything has to be completely fantastical. Or, and I still like these shows. The shows that are super subtle and precise and you really have to pay attention you have to have a lot of background knowledge and a one word phrase said by some person you have to like d- you know dig down three levels of subtext to realize that they just revealed this important plot point and they're never going to revisit it and you just have to understand it and know it those are satisfying too but westworld was i i can't think of a show that is comparable in terms of accessibility yeah like being being fair being solid being interesting and also having yeah accessibility to all levels like it it uh it's like a graceful degradation in a website it works if you have javascript on or off so the the, the, <laughs> the famous the famous story oh god <laughs> uh that that came up at the television critics association this to a press tour this summer is that they shut down production on westworld after like three episodes it got delayed and then people were like it's a troubled production and what the producer said at the tca was actually we got a couple episodes in and realized we didn't have as firm a, 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 an understanding of the rules of the universe as we thought we needed. And and since we're putting a lot of money into this and HBO's investing in this, and obviously, you know, you don't make a show to go on for one season and get canceled. You, the goal here is to run for a while and make a lot of money for your studio and for HBO. And they, they shut down production. And what they said is they locked down everything. It's like they locked down this season and they locked down the future storylines and they locked down the rules of the world. And I think it shows I'm going to, I'm inclined to believe them that they, that the producers had this moment, which is like, Oh, we can't make this thing up as we go along. We really need to get this right. And so let's pause and do that. And you can see it. It it is like from start to finish, it feels consistent in a way, uh, that, uh, that, uh, you know, is impressive. This is a much more satisfying puzzle box, right? Where, yeah. I mean, the, the, you know, they give you uh, a couple pieces and some crazy person on the internet is going to be able to conjecture, uh, you know, enough, enough monkeys at enough typewriters, somebody is going <laughs> to put something out that could be the right answer. Uh, and some people only need two pieces of the puzzle and some people need seven and some people need to see the whole puzzle assembled in front mm-hmm. of them. Uh, but that, that's, that's a good puzzle box is when it fits together. Not when it's like, nope, we've been faking you out the whole time and we're going to do this crazy thing that, you know, comes, comes out of left field so tony tony is that what you want you want the the puzzle box for second season i would like more puzzle box for second season i am real curious to see what they're gonna do um i I think a change in setting or maybe a jump forward in time would be uh key to keeping me interested and having more interesting questions that they explore um what I, i i don't think they will do and i hope they don't do is like let's do five episodes of the robot uprising and people running and gunning across the park uh, I mean, I wouldn't mind that, but I feel like I can get that somewhere else. They ought to be able to uh, put I, down I, those robots. It's not like the only humans in the entire world, as far as we know, are running the park. Like you can yeah. need to put down that rebellion pretty quickly. Well, you could even blow their uh, blow all their spines, but not Maves, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe I, I feel like we don't need to see lengthy, uh, robot rebellion. Uh, that also, that sounds really expensive, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I'm, I think some kind of jump forward possibly in time and maybe to another place would be, uh, would be interesting. So 
That's I think that's what I'm looking for. I'm confident enough in these storytellers that they could keep all five seasons that they've planned right there in Westworld because I think they can tell interesting stories. The location doesn't matter as long as it's interesting and there's drama and I want characters that I care about, right? Yeah. I want to get invested in it. Mm-hmm. I want a little puzzle box, but it doesn't have to be quite as intricate as this season. You know, but, but a little puzzle box is nice. But I I like the fact that they they wrapped a bow up on most things this season and it was self-contained. I'd like them to do that in the second season. And what I desperately, desperately don't want is I don't want Lost or the fourth season of Battlestar Galactica. All right, fair enough. Yeah. Nobody wants that. I mean, I feel like th- there are there are a couple loose threads from this season, but they're all ones that they could just drop. Yeah, if they, you have if they to have some like loose it. threads to lead you yeah. into the next season. If you tie yeah. everything right. up literally, unless you know you're going to be canceled, it's pointless. Yeah. Yes. Glenn, do you have expectations for next season? Uh, there's some seeds that were planted that we're waiting to see if they bloom or they just didn't have time. Like, I, It's interesting for a show – like this, I don't know about the production method, how tightly they have to shoot. I know that HBO gives them a lot of leeway. So there's things where I'm like, did they actually shoot some bits and they didn't have the, they needed four minutes or three minutes or two minutes and they cut it. So like Elsie and Stubbs, we've talked about a lot, like the characters were being set up in early episodes to have some part of an arc, like to be you know, players in it, not movers, probably. And they disappeared. Um, the ghost nation, um, was kind of presented as this, like, all right, it's a Native American trope and they're using them in a certain way, although they're incredibly terrifying. And there may be a metaphor for what's to come, uh, in mm-hmm. terms of what all the robots are going to do. They're all going to be sort of like ghost nation, just completely brutal against what they see as incurring incursions on their world. It's a perfect little, you know, subtextual metaphor, but I have a feeling that we're going to, I agree with a lot of people's sentiments. Um, I think we're going to jump forward in time because I don't think they're just going to pick up. That doesn't make any sense. We're going to come back to it. We've already seen how much they like to do interlayered uh, timelines and how well they can maintain them yeah. all. I think Elsie and Stubbs are going to be – someone pointed out – this is not exactly a spoiler. The Delos website changed or the Websworld website, the public one changed, and Elsie's voice is on there somewhere. So um, the idea that there's a resistance – like the uh, my thinking is – the whole park is locked down. It's going to be locked down for some period of time, maybe a large part of the season, and there'll be a subplot about a human resistance inside the remaining guests and uh, QA and so forth who are trying to fight and then factions of hosts fighting for what the intent is. How interesting that can be, I don't know, and I may, I may be totally off base, but then as the season progresses, the that end of season two arc is the outside world breaks mm. through in and it's a whole different ball game again. We find out, we get information huh. finally about what's outside the park. I, I think we will see some breakthrough to other worlds, though. I think the samurai world was a hint, and I don't know if we'll see it in season two. They may be planning it for later, but I think it's clear that if you're liberating yeah. one world, you're going to liberate all the worlds, right? Yeah, yeah. I'd I'd like to see like a political thriller where the worlds all become self-aware, and then they become sort of like warring nation states trying to right. ally with each other against the outside world, but also, you know, with intrigues among each other. Uh, that would be pretty cool. Fact, factions make sense. Kelly, do you have uh, goals for next year? I do. Um, one of so first of all, I wanted to say that this season really strikes me as a masterclass. Like I, I would like for future people who wish to make interesting, engaging television to basically study this and see. Mm. All of the balance in it, where we got bows on some storylines, some of them got buttons and some of them didn't, and like what the effect of those things were, and how 
all of the crazy theorists were along for the ride and yet people who didn't read anything on the internet were along for the ride and 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 like all of the things that they did where they were able to strike a balance between two pretty extremes uh was was really impressive to me um and like the 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 way it looked you know you can't fake 35 millimeter like period um you can't fake putting Soundgarden and Radiohead on a player piano yes. in the old west I'm that glad was you amazing. mentioned that I'm glad you mentioned that the music in this and and this, and especially all the Radiohead oh. was great it was really enjoyable they, Nathan uh, was just saying in our back channel about Maeve's tour of hell with uh, fake plastic trees playing in the background yes. was amazing. Yeah, you know, looks like the real thing, tastes like the real thing. My fake, my plastic, fake plastic girl. girl. I was just yeah. And and exit music from a film oh, at the end of episode ten with with at the end the kind of underscore of the of the Westworld theme coming back in under it just chills. Yes. chills. The first line of that song is "Wake from your sleep." Yeah. Oh yeah. Like just start there. Okay. So anybody who's not a huge Radiohead fan, go check that out. Um. And the other thing I was that that I am hoping uh, for the show, not just for the se- for the second season, is um, that they have an end in mind, whatever that end game might be, that they know how everything ties up. Because I really, I really need for that to happen. I know these yeah. are the things that we've talked about before, but I think that that's sort of what happened to Battlestar Galactica, and we know that's what happened in season three of Lost. They didn't know how far they were going to go, so they sort of took season three to figure it out. And I didn't like where they were going, but I I do like that at least they had an end point that they aimed for. Um, we can discuss execution on another show, but yeah. like at least they ended up with one. And they and- executed it. <laughs> they did. <laughs> Damn it. Um, but like I, I like when when someone goes in knowing that this is how much story they're going is going to be told, or at least how it's going to end, so that we know how to get out of it. Um, one of the things that sticks with me about this season is that that relates directly to next season is I'm not entirely certain that we need to go forward in time at all because we could also go back. Remember, Elsie goes to a place that is unused that seems to be sort of some sort of cold storage situation and it looks like Renfair World. Yeah. And one of the things that was interesting was when the doors opened and we saw the guy that was like the host that was sort of part of the pillar when we get to the Samurai World level and then we see all the samurai in the room in Samurai World. And I went, is it Samurai World or something? And then, or I think I said Japan World. And then we saw the logo and it was the S and the W. And I went, oh my God, it's Samurai World. And then Felix said, it's complicated. And then my husband said, so what level is Future World? Mm. And I was like, oh, you know they're going to have to throw back to that. So um, that's really what I'm hoping. And, and mostly uh, I was really excited because I wasn't super deep into the crazy theory stuff, and, but I was more than a casual viewer. And so for me in the middle of the road, it was a great show. I had so much fun with it. I really loved all of the paying off. And so um, I almost can forgive them for needing a year plus to make sure that they get everything right. Because almost. I'm yeah almost because I'm really antsy to find out what's next. So what I what I hope uh is next isn't even season 2. What I want is the kind of thing that they were doing um between a couple of seasons 
uh, for Lost because Lost was a show that ended very early in the year in the TV season and started very late in the TV season. And so they started doing these ARG games, uh, alternate reality games, where you could get like weird voicemail messages from people and the occasional random email with a secret link in it and on and on. And like now that the world is so much more mobile and so much more connected and so much more into digging for that stuff, um, I want that. I want to be able to go like read a newspaper's updates you know it's sort of like the world building stuff that they did for wally where you could go way down in the by and large youtube channel and see all kinds of crazy product videos for stuff and i really want to do that you have a career in marketing (laughs) (laughs) i want that so bad because i want to play it so very much and i really 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 hope that's what happens but um you know i feel like everybody else like given the people in front of the camera and given the people behind the camera uh whatever comes next i'm really really looking forward to it because it's going to be a lot of fun well let the brand extensions begin because we do have the time (laughs) we do have the time for it uh yeah i'm excited about uh about when it comes back i look forward to it this was a lot of fun it was a fun ride uh my expectations were basically non-existent and i uh I I I I was pleasantly surprised throughout. I enjoyed the whole ride, and uh, and there's so many different places they could go. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it being uh, m- more meta and more weird uh, weird twists and mashups of the present, you know, the present and past tropes and stuff like that. Uh, but we are going to wrap it up here for this episode of the Incomparable. I have nothing left to do but thank my wonderful guests for being here. Don Melton, thank you so much for being on The Incomparable. Thank you. Thank you for letting me barge my way into the show. I'm happy that you were here, and I'm glad that you and Kelly get to do uh, your podcast about Westworld, and and I look forward to you guys coming back for season two, too. Uh, How about that? You don't have to wait that long. We're going to do a rewatch. Yeah. Oh, right. See, look. (laughs) All right. You can get it all at theincomparable.com. Check it out. So, Kelly, come on. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me on my first official Incomparable panel. (gasps) Glenn Fleischman, thank you for being here. Thank you, and uh, freeze Jason's motor functions. Oh, they have frozen long ago. Damn. Nathan Alderman, glad to have you back again. Thank you for being here. Glad to be here, and uh, now I want to see a version of Jurassic Park where I'm rooting for the dinosaurs to eat the humans. Wait, oh, you yeah. weren't in the original? <laughs> I'm a little concerned that Jurassic Park is park number three, and the the, the, the dinosaurs are intelligent. Um <laughs> That would be that would concern me, John Syracuse. Thank you. I know things will work out the way they're meant to. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh, delete accent. There's a path for all of us, and it leads us back to you, Jason and Tony Sintelar. Thank you. How can you learn from mistakes if you don't podcast them? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that is uh, that's it for this episode of the Incomparable. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. Thanks to my panel. We will see you next week. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.